in a study through the book of Acts. We're almost to the end. We've got two chapters left. So turn with me to the end of chapter 26. We're going to pick up where we left off last week. Acts 26. If you remember, Paul, the Apostle Paul has just had a hearing with Festus, the Roman governor, over the Roman province that includes... Jerusalem and the nation of Israel, as well as King Agrippa II, who is king, the Roman king, over the Jews. And Paul has just finished his defense. That's where we left off last week. We're going to pick up in verse 30. Acts 26, verse 30. Then the king rose, and the governor and Bernice, and those who were sitting with him, uh, and, and when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, This man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. What an amazing statement. You'll remember that Festus had the idea to take Paul back to Jerusalem and have another hearing with the Jews with Festus overseeing that himself. And Paul wanted none of that. And that's when he said, I appeal to Caesar. And as a Roman citizen, Paul's a Jew, but he's also a Roman citizen. He can do that. And if he appeals to Caesar, Festus is legally bound to send him. And here Agrippa's saying, if he had not appealed to Caesar, we might have let him go. Now, whether or not they would have actually done that, I don't know. I think this is really just an acknowledgement from Agrippa and Festus that Paul is innocent. But he's going to Rome now. And here's the thing. Paul has always wanted to go. Flip over just a couple of pages in your Bible to Romans chapter 1. Just a couple of pages forward. Romans chapter 1 verse 9. This is Paul writing to the church, to the Christians in Rome. And listen to what he says. Verse 9, For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son. Without ceasing, I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, by yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. So Paul wants to go. And then as he finds himself in this big ordeal in Jerusalem and in the court of Felix the governor and then Festus who succeeded him, Jesus speaks to Paul, chapter 23, verse 11, and he says, Paul, as you've testified before me to the Jews, so you must also testify before me to Caesar in Rome. Paul, you're going to Rome. You not only want to go to Rome, I'm sending you to Rome. That's where we are. Let's pray. Father, as always, we ask for your help by your spirit. Your word is eternal, and we open our minds and hearts and we raise our expectations to that level that you would do something eternal in us. You would transform us by the renewing of our mind and let he who has ears to hear the word of the Lord, let them hear in Jesus' name. And everyone said amen. 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 Spoiler alert. If you're reading ahead in Acts, 
you're probably wondering, does Paul ever get to Caesar? Because Luke records that Paul gets to Rome, but there's absolutely nothing in Scripture about Paul actually having a hearing before Caesar, before Nero, who is Caesar at this point. There's nothing recorded in Scripture for us. But here's what we know is that Paul does make it to Rome around A.D. 60, and he spends about two to three years under house arrest there. And we know that Nero, around A.D. 64, set Rome on fire and blamed the Christians for it. Okay? Nero was not a nice guy. So Nero sets Rome on fire, blames the Christians. Sometime before that heinous act, Paul does have, we know this from other attested works of antiquity, that Paul does have a hearing before Nero, and Nero lets him go. And Paul resumes his missionary enterprise and goes as far as Greece until AD 67 when Nero arrests Paul again and has him executed. So Paul does get a hearing before Caesar, but it's not recorded for us in Scripture. Now what we're going to see next week as we get into chapter 28 is that Paul, under house arrest in Rome, does exactly what he said he wanted to do in Romans chapter 1. He ministers to the church there, to the Christians there. And it's phenomenal. We're going to look at that next week, Lord willing. But chapter 27 is all about Paul's journey from Caesarea, where he's been in Festus's court, to Rome. And I'm going to show you a map in just a minute, but just trust me when I say, it's a long way. It's a long way for us now. It was certainly a long way then. And chapter 27 of the book of Acts is so vivid. It is so detailed. It's probably one of the most detailed chapters in our Bibles. In fact, it is so detailed in regards to Paul's journey on a sailboat from Caesarea all the way to Rome that historians and archaeologists have studied it just simply for its value about ancient shipping practices. It's a, it is a valid historical document that people study to try to understand what people did when they were on the high seas back in those days and even how they responded to crisis. Isn't that cool? Isn't your Bible cool? The Bible's just cool. But I don't think that's why the Holy Spirit inspired Luke to write this much detail. I think this chapter is in our Bibles to yet again exalt the providence of God. And also... The fact that Paul's confidence in, his total abandonment to the providence of God gave rise to him having an unshakable character in crisis. That's what I titled this sermon, Character in Crisis. How many of you understand when your back is pushed up against the wall, that's when we find out who you really are. That's where we find out if the faith we profess is real. Do you know the whole book of James... The whole point of the book of James where he talks about faith without works is dead. His whole point there is that because he starts with to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, to the persecuted Christians who have been run out of Jerusalem, his whole point to them is this. If your faith can't get you through a crisis, it's dead. So, character in crisis. Let's look at how Paul trust in the providence of God gave rise to unshakable character in crisis. Let's get to work. Chapter 27, verse 1. 
Here we go. This is a wild ride, so y'all fasten your seatbelts. And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some of the other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship of Adramidium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon. And Julius, the centurion, treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. And putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra in Lycia. There the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Nidus. And as the wind did not allow us to go further, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmoni. Coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lycia. Now, let's, let's take a look at the map. We're going we're to do a little map study. You all see my little red dot? Okay, can you see it? Okay, so here's Jerusalem down here. Here's Caesarea. This is where Felix's, uh, excuse me, Festus' court was. It's where they started. They get on a boat. They go to Sidon. That's their first stop. It's about 70 miles. They go there. They go around Cyprus. When it says you go, they went under the lee of Cyprus, it means that they went around the backside of it. Apparently the winds were blowing this way really hard, and they're trying to get behind it enough that they could buffet themselves from the wind. So they go here, they go over to Myra, they change ships to a larger vessel, go up to Nidus, right here, and then they sail down with difficulty to Salmoni, and then around the island of Crete to Fair Havens, which is right here. That's where we are so far. Okay, everybody with me? All right, so here's what's interesting. This is the, the, re, the we passages have resumed. What does that mean? you remember? Luke's there. Luke wrote the book of Acts, and so... The last time we, heard, we saw him write we was in chapter 21, verse 18, I think. So Luke is on this boat. Not only Luke, but Paul's got another friend on board. His name is Aristarchus. He's a Macedonian from Thessalonica. You remember the Macedonians? Remember how they gave in the offering that Paul took for the Jews, the suffering Christians? Paul said that they gave well beyond their means, even in their own poverty and affliction. They begged us to give. Aristarchus is one of those people. And they're on the boat with Paul. Paul's got friends on board. Now, it was unheard of, unheard of for a prisoner of Rome on a prisoner transport to be able to have friends on board. There's only two reasons historians tell us that this could have happened. The first is, and this is what I think happened, Festus knew Paul was innocent. And so he gave Paul the courtesy of taking a couple of friends with him so that when Paul gets before Nero, he says, man, let me tell you about that guy Festus. He's an awesome dude. Right? Festus is looking out for himself. That's what I think happened. The other option would have been that Luke and Aristarchus would have literally had to become Paul's slaves. There was a law, a Roman law, that a Roman prisoner could bring his slaves with him. So those are the only two ways. Regardless of how they got on the boat, here's what's more amazing to me. That they got on the boat. Now, in our modern day, 
with all of our advancements of technology, shipping, engineering, you and I know the open sea is dangerous. Right? I can't, I, don't ever invite me to go on a cruise. I ain't doing it. Somebody told me the other day they're about to go on a cruise, and I'm like, good luck to you. Those things get viruses going all the way around them. The bathrooms break down. They get, you know, flip upside down. I'm not getting out there on a cruise ship. Okay? But imagine in Paul's day. Scary. In fact, some people in Paul's day were so afraid of the sea, they never ventured out in it at all their entire life. And it's why if you read the end of your Bible in Revelation chapter 21, when John... The revelator sees the new heaven and the new earth. He makes this statement, and there was no more sea. Why? Because the sea represented danger and evil. Now, here's what's even more interesting. In Paul's day, in the winter months, between November 11th and the end of March, the shipping lanes shut down. They were virtually impassable. Nobody sailed in the winter because it was just too dangerous. The winds and the storms were just too dangerous. But between September 15th and November the 11th, that period of time in the fall was known as the treacherous season. Why? Because it was a gamble. You're getting close to winter and a storm and the wind could pop up with no warning and you could find yourself in a real bad situation. So when are Paul and this crew, when are they on the high seas? Well, here's what we know is that Festus took office in July of AD 60. So that means that they launched out probably sometime around mid to late August in AD 60. So they are on the verge of the treacherous season. You with me? So the fact that Luke and Aristarchus would even get on this boat says one thing to me. There's some true brotherly love going on here. And how many of you understand that kind of friendship doesn't develop among people who have no character? Paul's been through a lot. He's been persecuted. He's been wrongly accused. He's experienced all kinds of injustice and stoning and beating and resistance and reviling. And through all of that, throughout his entire missionary career, he's got two friends, Luke and Aristarchus, that are willing to risk their lives and get on a boat with him. Brotherly love is not measured by emotion. It's measured by the willingness to sacrifice for someone else. Jesus said, greater love hath no one than this, than he lay down his life for his. I know he was talking about himself, but aren't we called to love like he loves? But how many of you understand, if your character isn't something that's proven in crisis, you may not find yourself with any friends like that. But Paul does. Not only that, but somehow, remember, we said their first stop was in Sidon, right here. They leave Caesarea, they go to Sidon, just that far. It's about 70 miles, took them about a day. Somehow in that amount of time, Paul wins enough favor with the centurion that when they get to Sidon, Paul says, hey, go see your friends. Somehow in 70 miles, Paul gains enough favor that he literally turns Paul loose, trusting him that he'll come back. Now, you talk about a risk. 
A soldier in the Roman army that has been charged with ensuring a prisoner's passage, like Paul, all the way from here to way up here in Rome. If he loses that prisoner, guess what? Rome makes him pay the prisoner's sentence. He's risking his life to let go Paul go visit his friends. And when we see friends in Scripture, it's literally talking about there's a church in Sidon that Paul gets to go visit, and he's strengthened and encouraged by seeing his friends, Christians, a church that knows him, and he knows them. I don't know about you, but when I'm in crisis, the storm hasn't hit yet, okay? We get some indications from Luke that the wind's getting rough. It's buffeting them. They're not really able to navigate exactly like they want to. The storm hasn't hit yet. But Paul's been through so much recently. How many of you understand he could become vindictive? He could be in survival mode and only thinking about himself. I don't know about you, but when I'm in a storm, my eyes tend to get on me. Am I the only one? My eyes get on me and I'm, all of a sudden I'm not paying attention to other people or I get vindictive, I get frustrated, I lash out, I, get, I have a bad attitude. But obviously Paul's not doing that because he somehow wins enough favor with the centurion that he gets to roam free in Sidon. So they leave Sidon and they make their way with difficulty down to Fair Havens. Let's see what happens next. Let's pick it up in verse 9. So since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and with much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul had said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to see from there on the chance that they might somehow reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. So, Paul gives a little warning. He says, guys, I perceive there's trouble out there. It's getting rough. Now, Paul is not an inexperienced seaman. He's been shipwrecked three times already. So he knows what he's talking about. But, the, the, the centurion decides to listen to the people with more expertise, namely the captain and the owner of the ship, and they want to push off. Why? Well, Luke tells us that this harbor in Fairhaven was not suitable to spend the winter. They're already thinking about the fact that we're nearing winter and we're not going to be able to go anywhere. And we know from history that that harbor was open and exposed to the wind, so staying there all winter could be disastrous. Not to mention the fact that the captain of the ship would have to pay the crew to sit there and do nothing in Fair Haven till the end of March. You with me? Just give me some nods, okay? Is this boring? Y'all with me? So they decide that they're going to push off and try to get to Phoenix. Phoenix is right here, just this far, because there's a better harbor there. And they realize they're not going to be able to get to Rome before winter. So let's just spend the winter in Phoenix. We'll park right there. Well, here's what happens. Let's keep reading. Verse 13. Now when the south wind blew gently, 
supposing that they had attained their purpose. So the winds died down right before they pushed off. And they thought, oh, we made the right call. Not so fast. They weighed anchor and sailed along Crete, close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and we were driven along. So they push off, the winds died down. And they think they've made the right call. But then here's what happens. A tempestuous wind called a northeaster. That means the wind is just humming off the land down this way. And tempestuous, basically they're in a hurricane. Hurricane force winds. And they quickly realize this. Remember, they're just trying to get from here to here. They quickly realize that they can't fight it. If they try to fight it, they're going to be capsized. So they give in to it. But there's a couple of problems. Here's what they've got to do. They're towing a lifeboat behind them. They're towing a lifeboat behind them. The bigger ships would just pull along these little lifeboats with a rope. And so here's what they do. There's a little island, and Luke mentions this if you read ahead. I'm not going to read the whole chapter. But he mentions there's a little island called Cauda about right here, just off the shore of Fair Havens. And what they do is they get in under the lee of that island. They get in behind it, okay? The wind's coming down like this. They get in behind this little island and get just enough buffer that Luke says they reel in the lifeboat, hoist it up, and put it inside the bigger ship, okay? They do that. Then Luke says they girded the ship. You understand that nowadays we put ships together with bolts. Didn't do that back then. They had to use pitch, or glue. And so you can imagine what would happen if this ship actually ran aground, right? Sound effect for you. Right? So what they did was, I don't know how they did this, but somehow they took ropes and cables and they literally wrapped them around this big old ship to, to attempt to hold it together. And here's the third thing they did. They realized that they were in danger of running aground. Right here is the northern coast of Africa, a little place called Serene. And there's a reef right here. It's called the Greater Surtees. And what would happen is when these northeasters would hammer these ships coming off Crete, a lot of times they would get blown down into this reef and the ships would break apart and entire crews would be lost. It's a shipping graveyard. Archaeologists have studied it for years and found all kinds of remnants of ships that got pushed in to this reef right here and broke apart and people were lost. They're thinking that. This northeaster is going to blow us into that reef. So here's what they do. They lowered the main sail. I'm, I'm, I'm going to bring all this together. Just stay with me. They lower the main sail in an attempt to keep from getting blown into that reef. And it worked. Look at this. You read to the end of the chapter. and We'll pick it up next week. Here's where they crash. Malta. Recognize that boot? Rome's up here. Just above, just above my dot there. They crash at Malta. At one point Luke says, we couldn't see the sun or the stars anymore. Which means what? They don't know where they're going. No GPS. I don't know if you use GPS on, on ships or not. But in, they... they I don't know much about shipping. I just learned as much as I could this week about this chapter. They can't navigate. They're sailing blind. 
And somehow, they get from here to here. Who's driving that boat? Come on, who's driving the boat? With no mainsail, lifeboats pulled in, swirling hurricane force winds, and they somehow get all the way across the sea to Malta. Don't ever forget this. You ever felt like your life was out of control? You ever been in a storm and you felt like you lost all ability to navigate yourself? You just don't even know where you are, which way you're going. How do I get out of this? Which way? God, what can I possibly do? Can I tell you something? God is not hands off. He does not give up control or lose control when we're in the storm. He is still driving your boat. He is not... He has not backed off his care for you if you find yourself in the middle of a storm in a situation that you can't control. He is still sovereignly, providentially ruling over your life. And the difference between you living with integrity and character and God honoring in the storm and absolutely abandoning your faith is your trust in his providence. There's a lot happens between Fair Havens and Malta. But here's what we know is that God was driving that boat. He's in control. Now, what happens next? Let's skip down to verse 21. So keep in mind, well, he already took the map off. I'll point it out in a minute. Verse 21. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. There's a little bit of I told you so. But I don't think, you know, he's doing it sarcastically or passive-aggressive. Let's keep reading, verse 22. Yet now I urge you to take heart. Be encouraged. It's literally what that means. For there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the, of the God to whom I belong and to whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who will sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly. Everybody say exactly. Exactly as I have been told, but we must run aground on some island. <laughs> you should have listened. But here's what I can tell you. God sent an angel and told me that I'm going before Caesar and not one of you is going to lose his life. The ship's going to be lost, but you're all going to live and we're going to crash on some island and we're going to get there. Anybody gamble? I'm just kidding. You don't have to raise your hand. <laughs> but what are the odds? Stop and think. Can you mathematically parse that out? That with no mainsail, no ability to navigate, in a tempestuous wind, a hurricane basically, they're going to crash on some island and the crew, I mean the, the cargo and the ship itself are all going to be lost but not one of them will perish. There's only one of two things that can happen right there. Number one, 
is Paul's wrong. And he's proven to be a madman like Festus thought he was. Or he's right. And God's really in control. You know, in the storm, you're going to find yourself in those places where unless God intervenes, you're going to fall flat on your face. Sometimes he'll speak to you and give you encouragement. But can you imagine... Imagine yourself being Paul and standing up before a crew in the midst of this incredible storm and saying, even when you don't know where you are, because somewhere right along in here, they lost the ability to navigate. They don't even know where they are. And Paul stands up in front of them and says, look, I know God is going to get us all the way there. Paul's walking through this so restfully. He's not anxious He's not afraid. He's trusting. You know why? Because I think Paul understood that sometimes God will use a storm to get you exactly where he wants you to be. And we try to fight it. We try to push back off it. We get afraid. We go into survival mode. Just like a lot of the crew and the sailors on this boat were doing. They're pitching stuff overboard left and right. In fact, at one point, the crew decided they were going to bail and they picked that lifeboat back up and put it back in the water and they're about to jump ship. And Paul stopped him and he said, look, if you do that, you're going to die. And I guess by that point they realized, you know what, we better listen to this guy Paul. And then they cut the rope. Forgive the gambling reference again, but they're all in. this point Paul's walking through it so restfully and he says it's going to happen exactly as I've been told that's a billion to one shot but indeed they make it all the way to a little reef right off the coast of Malta and the ship hits that reef and breaks apart and they bail and they literally swim to shore on Malta, safe. And then we'll see what happens there next week, and it's pretty awesome too. But Paul's restful. And then, let's watch what he does with the influence he's gained. Just one more section from chapter 27, verse 33. And as day was about to dawn, Paul urged them to take some food, saying, Today is the 14th day that you have continued in suspense without food and having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength. For not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. And they were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. I'm amazed that Paul, in the midst of this storm, did not lose sight of the needs of others. Because like I said before, it's easy for us to go into survival mode and only focus on ourselves. But Paul realizes he's gaining influence on this ship. And he pauses and he says, guys, we need to eat. You need to be strengthened. Not a hair of your head is going to perish, but you need to eat. And so can you imagine a boat full of sailors and crew, a captain, an owner, 
a centurion, Roman soldiers, other prisoners, all gather around the table as Paul breaks the bread and gives thanks to God. What an incredible picture that Paul could be that restful, that Paul could be that mindful of other people, and that he could bring glory to God by directing their attention. Can you imagine the moment that it dawned on this centurion? Festus didn't order this trip. Some higher power did. I thought I was on this boat to care for this prisoner per the orders of Festus. There's a greater power driving this whole thing. And somehow it's working through this guy, Paul. And they all bow. They take some bread, they eat, and they're encouraged. So what have we learned? I think, first and foremost, we've learned that in the storm, God's still in control. And I know that sounds simple. I know that sounds cliche. But it's just true. If you're in a place where you feel like everything's swirling around you and you've completely lost control and you're, you know, maybe you could even put it on a, on a continuum. Maybe you just feel stressed right now about some things or maybe you feel like you're in the worst storm you've ever been in. Regardless of where you are, the first thing to remember is that God is in control. Romans 8 says that the sons of God are led by the Spirit of God. And that God works all things together for good so that we might be pressed but we're not crushed. It might mean that you're in this storm purely because it's the way in which God's going to get you where He wants you. So that's the first thing we've learned. But what have we learned from Paul when it comes to someone like him totally abandoning themselves to that truth in, in the midst of the storm? Let me tell you three things real quick. Number one, confidence and trust in the providence of God in the midst of the storm positions us to maintain our character and attitude so that God can use us in the storm. Trust and confidence in the providence of God positions us, allows us to maintain our character and attitude so that God can use us in the storm. Oftentimes I hear Christians talking about how God's going to use me after the storm. When he brings me through. And my, you know one of my struggles is when I'm in the storm, I get impatient. I get anxious. I get in a hurry to get through it. I have a pretty high pain tolerance, but the way I deal with pain is I push through it so that it's over faster. If I'm having to do a hard job that I hate... Like when we had to rip up the linoleum in the parsonage when we were renovating down there, it was awful. My sympathies to anybody that does that for a living. I, it, I mean, every muscle in my body hurt, but the only thing I knew to do was grab those scrapers and just as hard as I could so that it was over faster. But Paul is so restful in the storm because he trusts the providence of God. God's able to use him in the storm. God wants to use us in the storm and after the storm. Amen? So if we trust His providence, we trust that His promises are true, that He's faithful, there's no shadow of turning in Him. 
it is possible to walk through the storm restfully and be paying attention to how he wants to use us in it. Here's number two. Confidence and trust in the providence of God keeps us from being vindictive in the storm. Getting, lashing out, becoming angry, being frustrated. Even endeavoring to attack or visit vengeance on those who might have caused the storm. You realize that I love the verse in Isaiah, no weapon formed against us will prosper. In other words, the intent of the injustice visited on you, God is going to flip it for good. He works all things together for good. That means even the injustice visited on you is not out of His sovereign rule. That's a place to rest. That's a place to take courage. Is that even though I didn't... This is the way we think. I didn't do anything to deserve this. I didn't bring this on myself, but yet here I am. But here's what I know. God's driving my ship. And I don't have to get vindictive. I don't have to let anger overtake me. I can even do good to those who visited evil on me. And you know what might happen? God might use your, the, the demonstration of mercy and forgiveness through you in the storm to change their hearts. Either way, you walk through the storm restfully rather than being vindictive. Here's number three. Trust and confidence in the providence of God in the storm. I've kind of already alluded to this. It keeps us from anxiousness in the storm. Such that, here's what I want to add to that. Such that we're able to be attentive to the needs of others. I love how Paul, in the midst of this incredible storm, was able to somehow keep his head about him and realize that everybody needed to eat. I love that. But if we're anxious, if we go into survival mode, we're not paying attention to the needs of others, and yet God wants to use us in the storm. So, how many of you, if Mary's here, she can come to the piano. How many of you realize that right now, you're, you would just be honest enough to say, you're in the storm right now? Would you just raise your hand if you're in a storm right now? Okay, thank you, thank you. And, and how many of you would just be transparent enough to say, you know what, in the storm, I'm struggling to keep confidence in the providence of God over my life. How many of you would just raise your hand and say, I'm struggling with that. Yeah, let's be honest about that. Let's be honest about that. Yeah. Struggling to keep confidence in the providence of God. Here, here's how I want us to pray this morning. In the storm, Paul got another word from God. It was delivered by an angel. It said, look, Paul, you're going to Caesar. You're going to Rome. Nobody on this ship's going to perish. And sometimes, even though we know and we trust the word of God, sometimes we need the Lord. And I think he's a good father who wants to show up in our lives and give us a tangible reminder, I am driving the boat, trust me. 
And so I think it would be right for us to pray very specifically today that if you're struggling to maintain confidence in the providence of God, that He would speak to you. It's like I said a while ago, God still speaks. I think Jessica said it during worship. God speaks through His Word, by His Spirit, and He encourages us. That's what it means. It means to take courage, to be strengthened. And you realize that encouragement is not just a pat on the back from God. It's actually a work of the Holy Spirit. There is a spiritual gift of encouragement where God does something supernaturally in our souls that gives us strength for the storm. So in just a minute, I'm going to invite you to ask the Lord to speak to you, to encourage you in the storm, remind you that He's in control, even though you feel out of control. And that even though you're longing to get through this storm as quickly as possible, that it might be the very thing He's using to get you where He wants you to be. And so let's trust Him. Let's believe. Sometimes when God speaks, He gives us those little, I call them God nuggets. Just reminding me that He's there. Maybe you'll get something like that. Maybe you'll sense His voice so strongly that you'll take courage and strength. Regardless, let's ask Him. Let's ask Him to show Himself strong this morning. Amen. Let's stand together. So with your heads bowed, I'm going to invite you to just go to the Lord right now and tell Him where you are. Just pour out your heart to the Lord this morning. Tell Him about your frustration. Tell Him about your fear. Tell Him about your anxiety, your anger. Just pour your heart out to Him right now. Now let's ask him to speak. Just tell him, Lord, I need to hear from you. I want to hear your voice. Show me, remind me you're in control. Now just listen. Listen for him. Let's begin to thank him. Let's thank him for who we know him to be. God, I thank you that you're driving my boat in the storm. I thank you that you're faithful. There's no shadow of turning in you. The way that you led and sovereignly ruled over Paul's life, you're leading and sovereignly ruling over mine. 
Thank you that the weapons that have been formed against me will not prosper, that you're working all things together for good. Come on, just give him thanks. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you that I belong to you. Sometimes it's in the storm that we're reminded that it's better that I belong to him and not to me. Oh, God, thank you. Thank you for your providence. Thank you for your peace this morning that passes all understanding, that's guarding our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thank you that you're the God of the storm. The winds and waves know your name. You speak to them and they obey you. Thank you that you're allowing us to walk restfully through our storms, that you're actually opening the doors of men's and women's hearts to us, that we could even in the storm be attended to their knees and bring you glory where thanksgiving would be given to you. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Father.